0: Well, Christ City, this world is a broken place and we know it. And in this world and in our experience of this world, we long for freedom. Freedom from, freedom from the stabbings in our own city. Freedom from the continued COVID pandemic, from disease and death, from homelessness and addiction and mental illness. Freedom from hatred and strife and disunity in our families, in our cities, in our government. Freedom from injustice and cruelty all around. We need freedom. We long for freedom from these things. But it seems like no matter how desperately we try or what new solution we try to to implement, we can never quite find the freedom that we're looking for. Well, this morning I'm here on the beach in Spanish banks with the sunrise happening behind me to tell you that the true freedom you long for is here. It's available to you today. Because into our world of sin and death and darkness, the true morning has dawned. It's Resurrection Sunday. And 1,967 or so years ago, Jesus Christ was raised raised bodily from the dead. And like the sunrise you watch behind me as I'm preaching, his true freedom has been filling this world through his church by the power of his Holy Spirit, just as he said it would. This morning we're going to look at the resurrection. And as I do, we'll consider two important questions that I pray will stimulate your faith and cause you to walk with greater courage and faithfulness to Jesus Christ by the power of his spirit. So the two questions we'll consider this morning are these. First, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And second, if so, why does that matter for me today? What difference does it make in my life? We'll jump in right away and consider this first question. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Well, it's Resurrection Sunday, but we might wonder, is it legitimate today in a world with smartphones and spaceships and genetic engineering to speak of a literal resurrection from death? Isn't it at this point, I think, in our conversations with other people, that we actually lose them? For the most part, people don't have any issues with talking about Jesus As a person, but the minute you talk about his resurrection, the conversation tends to shift a little bit. You may have noticed this. You find that people believe in Jesus as a good man and as a moral teacher, but not as Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord of all. And because of our inclination to doubt anything miraculous in our lives, there's this bit of this popular myth about who Jesus must really have been, instead of what the Christians say. And Pastor and Author Tim Keller, he talks about this modern myth about Jesus in the following way, saying, if you ask the average person, the average educated person in particular in the West about who Jesus is, they might say something like this. Let me read it for you. This is what Tim Keller writes. They might might say something like this. Well, Jesus was a good man and a fine teacher of love and wisdom. But as the years went by, followers of Christ started to develop more and more high views of him and started to say that he was divine and the son of God. And the resurrection stories developed, and after a couple centuries of these legends growing up, they were written down in the New Testament. And that's how we have Christianity. And then Tim Keller goes on to comment, and he says this, and that's sort of a mishmash of Religion 101, Philosophy 101, and the Da Vinci Code, sort of wrapped up into one. See, this sort of thing is a common answer to who Jesus is and why Christianity is in our world today. And it's all well and good, sort of, except that every part of it is actually wrong. Let me walk you through a couple of reasons then why this sort of account is wrong and why it is reasonable to believe in the resurrection as having happened in history. Well, first of all, note this. Luke wrote down his accounts of Jesus' resurrection not after hundreds of years like this sort of story claims, but actually 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And Luke is an an anomaly. Contrary to the popular mistaken belief that the New Testament documents and accounts about Jesus were written hundreds of years after the fact, all of them were completed and finished having been written only 60 or 70 years after the events took place. Furthermore, the New Testament accounts of the resurrection are based not on myths, but on eyewitness testimony. That's important. The first accounts of the first witnesses to see Jesus, they're recorded in the Bible in Matthew 28, in Mark 16, and in John 20. And the first witnesses that saw Jesus were women. These witnesses were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. And this is a really significant thing because if you wanted to make up a story in the ancient world about a resurrection to try to start a movement, you would not pin those facts on the testimony of women. And the reason for that was that wrongly and sadly in the ancient world, a woman's testimony wasn't even valued in court. It wasn't something that was respected and used to back up uh, events and, and as a trusted witness. So the only reasonable motivation for using the testimony of women then is that that's actually what happened. That these women were the first to see the resurrected Jesus and that the Bible records the facts just as they happened. These women were the first witnesses, but they weren't the only witnesses. They weren't these three people off there over on the side pulling the wool over the eyes of all the other believers. No, the gospel writers also record Jesus appearing to his disciples to Peter and James and John and the others, to Thomas, who doubted the resurrection and placed his fingers in the wounds of the bodily resurrected Jesus Christ before he believed. And then Jesus even appeared to 500 people at one time, many of whom are, were still alive when Paul wrote about them in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. And the point these New Testament authors are making By recording all of these witnesses and mention that they still lived is this. The point is this. If you don't believe us, you can go and ask these people. This is a well-documented fact. Go and talk to them. Find out if what we're saying is true. Because the reality is is this. It's very convenient to make up a myth about something that happened hundreds of years before when all the people that could verify or corroborate that myth are dead. But it's much more difficult to tell a lie about something that happened in recent history and then name hundreds of witnesses that you could talk to and use to verify uh, what you're talking about. I think this leads to one of the most significant problems we face when looking at the historical witness of the resurrection today. And that's what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery is this perspective that looks back on history and thinks, well, They just believed the resurrection because they just weren't as smart as we are today. They were a lot more gullible than we are today in our modern world. But friends, if you actually think that, then I'm going to assume that you haven't been on social media for a while. I'm going to assume that you haven't been keeping up with the conspiracy theories that are gaining in popularity all around us in the world today. The truth is there's no empirical evidence that people who lived in the first century have any lower IQ than we do or are any more gullible than we are. You see, Paul and the other apostles, they wrote to intelligent people, many of whom had strong reasons to doubt the resurrection. Strong reasons built into their worldview and their understanding of reality that caused them to doubt that it could have happened. Reasons like how the early Jews would have struggled in a very, very great way to believe that God himself would take on human flesh, would become human, to be born in the first place as a man, and then to suffer and to die, and then to be raised to new life. But perhaps the most compelling reason to believe in the resurrection is this Christianity took the world by storm after Jesus was resurrected. And it took the world by storm, not because it increased your social respectability to believe in it. The early Christians faced social stigma and persecution, and many of them willingly died for their faith in Jesus. It's hard to believe that this core group of witnesses would be willing to die for a lie that they knew they had fabricated. So in summary, the resurrection accounts of early witnesses whose testimonies were recorded and circulated close to the time the actual events took place. They were believed and Christianity grew and exploded in the ancient world. And the most reasonable explanation for this is that the resurrection actually happened. Just as a New Testament scholar N.T. Wright comments. Today, the rational man can hardly be blamed if he believes that on the first Easter morning, a divine miracle occurred. Now, even if the resurrection did happen, the second question we need to ask ourselves is, so what? If it happened, then why would it matter? Does it change my life in any way? What's the significance of the resurrection? After all, lots of things have happened in history that don't affect my life at all. For example, murder hornets now live in British Columbia. That seems like a pretty significant historical fact. Other than the fact that it doesn't change my life at all. I haven't adjusted anything in my life because murder hornets are here. The resurrection is a different sort of historical fact. Because if it happened, then there is nothing that ought to shape the course of your life more than it does. Let me show you two reasons why. First, look at what the Apostle Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, verse 32, and also verse 36 about the resurrected Jesus. He wrote this, he said, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And then in verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see, because of the resurrection, Peter calls Jesus in verse 36, both Lord and Christ. When Peter calls Jesus Lord and Christ. He's saying two things. First, he's saying that Jesus is resurrected. He is God. He is the absolute ruler over all things. And second he is saying that he is the Messiah, he's the anointed one, the promised one who came in fulfillment of all of God's promises that he made in the first half of the Bible in the Old Testament and that he's now come to fulfill and to implement bringing life and light into a world of darkness and suffering. He's a chosen one. But not the chosen one that's a trope in all of the superhero movies, the real historical one who's come to bring fulfillment and blessing. And because he is both Lord and Christ, every one of Jesus' decrees for good will come to pass forever. Christ said, I lived uh, in the United States during the Obama administration, during his second election, and also for the uh, first election for Trump. And then after I've come home, I've looked back and I've watched my friends kind of from a distance and observed the way that they've behaved and acted in this last election. And what I've observed is this, in the United States... I think it's true that there's this enormous hope that is placed on a new administration. And when your candidate that you've hoped for and prayed for finally comes into office, you rub your hands in anticipation of what all the things that they will do, all the executive orders that they will roll back, all the new things they will put in place and the changes that they will try to accomplish. But let's be honest for a minute. It's a little bit laughable today, I think, how impermanent the change worked by four years in office can be. But Jesus' rule is different. Because of Jesus' resurrection as Christ and Lord, his rule isn't impotent or impermanent. It's eternal and powerful Jesus is the king of kings who reigns forever with the power and the authority to right every wrong and the wisdom and the patience to work all things over the long arc of human history for good and for his eternal glory. In a world full of suffering, in a world full of darkness, a world full of uncertainty, this is good news for us, Christ City. It's good news because we belong to the resurrected king of of kings and that gives us hope it gives us confidence to serve him without fear as we live our lives knowing that he is firmly in control that he is using even the hard things for good you see because Jesus is resurrected both Lord and Christ all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well Second, Jesus' resurrection matters because he is the only king who has the power to free those who are enslaved. And freedom, Christ City, is something that we all want. All of us want this. Personal freedom today is the highest value that we have in our modern society. We all value freedom. Freedom to express ourselves our way. Freedom to follow our hearts. Freedom to live authentically for who we truly are. And recently in our society, this freedom has often meant freedom from Christianity. We're told that when human beings have rejected the Christian message, when finally they create a culture where we define humanity our way without any of the the oppressive powers of the hegemonic views of Christianity, all things will be well. But we have forgotten history. You see, we've tried to free ourselves from Christian teaching before. David Bentley Hart is uh, widely regarded as one of the foremost theologians and philosophical minds alive today. And in writing about the violence of the French Revolution, the Nazi movement, Stalinism, the atheistic communist states, and the grand utopian projects of the modern age, he summarizes his point like this. He says this, The most pitilessly and self-righteously violent regimes of modern history in the West have been those that have most explicitly cast off the Christian vision of reality and sought to replace it with a more human set of values. No cause in history has destroyed more lives with more confident enthusiasm than the cause of the brotherhood of man, the post-religious utopia, or the progress of the race. To fail to acknowledge this would be to mock the memory of all those millions that have perished before the advance of secular reason in its most extreme manifestations. See, the bottom line is this. Christ, we need to realize that the freedom to follow our hearts, where our hearts lead, will not lead to the freedom we desire. It will lead instead to greater slavery to our passions, to slavery to lust and anger and bitterness and unforgiveness, to slavery to selfishness and prejudice, to uh, to slavery to our worst impulses. Our worst impulses at work in our homes, in our relationships, in our neighborhoods, in our governments, and in our world. But Christ, there is good news for us today. Because Jesus has been resurrected. He is able to set us free truly and finally from our slavery. See, the people who witnessed Jesus firsthand when he was resurrected, they knew the bitterness of slavery. They knew oppression and violence and political horrors. It was their daily reality under Rome. But by his resurrection, Jesus came to crush a crueler and more fundamental enemy than even Rome. See, before Jesus' birth, the angel Gabriel announced to Joseph these words, She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this may not have been exactly the liberating message the oppressed people of Jesus' day were hoping for. But it isn't a bait and switch. When we look at our resurrection text in Luke 24, we need to realize that Luke has structured everything that he's writing about in both books that he wrote, both in Luke and in Acts, around the resurrection. The resurrection is at the center because Luke knows perfectly well that Jesus' resurrection was precisely the means by which God would finally bring liberty and blessing through freedom from sin. How? How? Because through his resurrection, Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father and has poured out his Holy Spirit on his church in fulfillment of his promises to liberate his people from their sin. I want you to look at one of God's promises with me from the Old Testament. One of these promises to to liberate his people from their sin. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 to 28. This is a promise that was made six centuries earlier before Jesus arrived. God spoke through his prophet Ezekiel, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. You see, the heart of the human problem. Is the problem of the human heart. And Jesus came in fulfillment of this promise to pour out his spirit on us, to free us from slavery to sin, to give us new hearts to live freely in obedience to God. And it's the fulfillment of this promise that Luke records, and he records Peter preaching about it in Acts chapter 2 after the Holy Spirit is poured out on Jesus' church. Peter proclaims in this text I'm about to read, he proclaims to a watching world that we're wondering what on earth is going on at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit's poured out on the church. He proclaims to this watching world these words. He says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Christ city hear this. The liberty proclaimed to the gospel of the resurrected king Jesus isn't first liberty from corrupt political powers. It's freedom from sin. But because we are freed from our sin, true liberty and blessing is enabled to grow in this world, to expand outward through the church of Jesus, transforming neighborhoods and cities and governments as a love of God explodes and fills up human hearts, freeing them from sin, causing them to love God and to love one another as God created us to. You see, when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was only the beginning. Jesus' resurrection was like the first light of dawn that once begun would continue to fill and expand this world with the brightness of its rising. And we can actually see this liberating work, this dawn expanding, writ large in 2,000 years in the history of the church. I want to turn now to a few examples from that history to show you the way the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a spirit is poured out on his church has made a difference and continues to make a difference. First, you realize this. At the time of Jesus' resurrection, cruelty was normal. It was an age when infanticide was normal and accepted, when wealthy Romans stocked their homes with boys and girls to use as they pleased, when tortures forget Guantanamo Bay, were mind-bogglingly cruel, when it was believed the weak were there by nature to be slaves of the strong, When people would have looked at you and questioned your sanity, if you said the poor and the beggar and the disabled and the sick deserved your help and your sacrifice. See, these things were normal. They were accepted and they were defended. It was a wicked and a cruel world that Christianity was born into. But into this world, the message of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit began to free humanity from our sin and to make a profound difference. You see, Jesus' Holy Spirit began filling this world of death with his life. Consider this example from the life of the emperor, Julian the Apostate. In the fourth century, Emperor Julian the Apostate, the nephew of Constantine, he converted back from Christianity to the pagan religion of Rome. And with that conversion back to paganism, he sought to bring a spiritual counter-revolution against Christianity because it was expanding so much already in that ancient world. And as he fought for this pagan revival, he was dismayed to see his own priests failed to live anything like the Christians. And he wrote this. "Is how apparent to everyone it is and how shameful that our own people lack support from us when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Christian support not only their own poor, but ours as well. You see, Julian was dismayed by the lack of care that the pagan religion of Rome showed toward the poor and vulnerable. And so Julian sought to promote more of the same sort of Christian charity that he was seeing in the Christian world from his pagan religion to answer what was going on in Christianity and to try and bring this pagan revival. But as atheist historian and Oxford professor Tom Holland comments, the young emperor Sincere, though he was in his hatred of Christian teachings and in his regretting their impact upon all that he held most dear, was blind to the irony of his plan for combating them, that it was itself irredeemably Christian. See so Julian didn't realize it was happening, but we can. The spirit of Christ was advancing through his church. And after only 300 years of the reign of Jesus over his church, pouring out his Holy Spirit, freeing sinners from their sin, Julian had no recourse but to critique his paganism and grow frustrated with it, using the measuring stick of Christian love to do so. But the sunrise, begun with Jesus' resurrection, it continued to grow brighter still. More and more people found freedom from sin and began living differently. As a result, infanticide was stopped. Abandoned children were adopted. The oppressed, sick, and poor were cared for. The first welfare programs organized and set up and structured began in the storehouses of the ancient church. Women who were regarded as the property of men were protected and made equals with their brothers in the church. Universities were started, and empirical science was invented. And by the sixth century, well organized hospitals were built, staffed with physicians and surgeons, and made available to the poor for free. And slavery, accepted everywhere in the ancient world, was slowly pushed back and increasingly condemned. First, As slaves in the early church were made equal with their masters in the gospel, even often having the slaves in positions of spiritual authority over their masters in the church. And then to the 4th century bishop, Gregory of Nyssa, the first to condemn slavery outright. And then through the Middle Ages and through the labors of the 17th century Quakers and the early abolitionists, through the evangelical Christian William Wilberforce and to the faith of Harriet Beecher Stowe, slavery was opposed and toppled. You see, Jesus, through his outpoured spirit, through his church, has changed this world. So much so that Thomas Jefferson, who was no Christian, can make the claim, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That God has created all men equal. That they are endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights. But Christ said, make no mistake. Jefferson's error and the error of this modern age is that there is nothing self-evident about this claim. It is directly as a result of the progress of Christianity of the spirit of Jesus Christ liberating his church from sin, setting sinners free that we believe these things to be true. Christ city Jesus has been raised from the dead. Through his spirit his work will continue through his church until the mustard seed of his kingdom fills up this world and grows into the tree that fills all things until the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray comes true your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven You see, the freedom that we all long for, we celebrate this morning because of the resurrection of Jesus. The freedom we all long for only comes to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, pouring out his spirit and freeing us from our sin. So what does all this mean? What does all this mean? It means that Jesus has come. It means that the light has dawned into a world of darkness and death. It means that Jesus really was raised from the dead. It means Jesus' spirit really did descend on his church. It means that we today have 2,000 years of history of more evidence to believe that these things are true and to live our lives in light of them. And it means that there is nothing more life-giving than finding freedom by submitting fully to Jesus, the King of Kings. In Acts chapter 2, verses 36 to 38 Peter preaches this gospel message about the resurrected eternal King Jesus to a Jewish crowd and he says this, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Christ City, in response to the resurrection, we need to listen to Peter. Jesus is Lord and Christ. And in light of that, we must repent of our sin. We must pledge radical allegiance, repudiating the things that we are living for, opposed to him, Pledging, pledging radical allegiance to him the king of kings and the lord of lords as we give ourselves to live boldly and richly with the power of his spirit loving him and loving others living in his church christy do you want to make a difference in this world do you want your life to have meaning and purpose there is literally nothing more important, more eternally meaningful and valuable than giving yourself to this Lord, surrendering your life to this Jesus, living richly in His church, participating in the work that He has been doing for 2,000 years and will continue to do until He returns. The light has dawned, the full day is coming. Will you surrender to Jesus? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we have looked at a lot this morning. It's been a bit of a different message in many ways, but I think it's an important one. Father, I pray that you would use the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to stir our souls to greater faith, to greater allegiance to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to greater prayerfulness that your spirit would powerfully be at work in our church and in the city. We ask, fill us more and more with Jesus. Fill the city more and more with your glory. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.